For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. 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 This is the word of the Lord. Yes. <laughs> you can have a seat. Thank you, Joy. On a, uh, on a Tuesday morning last December, my phone buzzed, and it was an old friend from New York, and I hadn't heard from him in quite a while. We were really close for years, but had more or less lost touch uh, since moving here. So I pick up, hey man, hey I'm so sorry just to drop this on you, uh, but I slept with this girl last night. I know, I shouldn't have done that. And uh, I was laying in her bed this morning and I'm just staring at the ceiling and it just hit me. What hit you? I can't seem to get the things that I believe most in my head down into my heart into my bones, into my actions. So I believe certain things with my mind, but I believe other things with my actions, with my expressed life. And I just got to thinking, you know, that my life's not really going to make sense entirely until I get all this Jesus stuff figured out. He was not a believer at this time. And I was thinking that maybe I could come to Portland for a little while and go to your church and try to see if the things I think matter most in my head might begin to matter most in my heart and in my life. So Edwin has lived with my family and I for just over six months now. And it was in mid-March uh, when he came forward in this church one Sunday and he stood right over here and he received ministry and he met Jesus. He had this love plunge into his life that had been coming after him. Uh, that's what we call salvation, what scripture calls salvation. And until we know that kind of love, nothing can really entirely be right within us. But when we know that kind of love, then something becomes irrevocably right within us at the very deepest level. And that's true. And that is, is something right uh, is now within Edwin. Something is irrevocably right that wasn't before. And this is also true, that the question that prompted his original phone call still stands. How do I get the stuff that I believe deepest in my head down into my bloodstream? That is a question that we never stop asking, that we keep on asking at every stage in the spiritual journey. Like, I believe in God's unconditional love, but I still find myself wallowing in shame every time I fall again into that same pattern. 
Or, or I believe in God's companionship being enough, but I'm also haunted by the fear of ending up alone. I believe that life is about relationship and that compassion is the most powerful force in the world, but I also notice that most of my daydreams and unconscious thoughts are primarily about myself. I believe that money is the root of all kinds of evil and that you save your life by giving it away, but I also notice that I accumulate possessions and upgrade along the same pace as basically everyone else in my socioeconomic class. I believe that God loves my son more than I ever will, that he's the good shepherd that leaves the 99 to go after the one, but I still lie awake at night worrying about my adult child's future. So how do I get the stuff that I believe, the creeds that I recite and the songs that I sing and the passages that I read from my head down into my bloodstream. The theologian Karl Barth used to talk about this, saying that the aim of theology is not merely to get it known, but to get it lived. And that's what I mean. How do I get past knowledge and into life? And that is exactly the question that Paul is getting at in Ephesians chapter three when he stops writing, drops to his knees, and begins praying. So we're in this teaching series right now called Ephesians, Immeasurably More. And it's been a while. I haven't been here for any of it yet. <laughs> so I just wanna say in a moment of vulnerability that I missed you. And it's okay if you don't reciprocate it. <laughs> I'm ready for that. But I'm glad to be back. And we've dedicated the summer up to this point, working through the New Testament letter of Ephesians verse by verse. And today represents the hinge, the turning point of the whole thing. This prayer is the center of the letter. And so by the way, you, or by this point, you know that Ephesians is not a book, as we often call it. It is one of 13 letters written by the Apostle Paul to churches that are sprinkled throughout the Greco-Roman world in the first century. And this particular letter is to the church in the city of Ephesus, hence the name Ephesians. Clear, not clever. And one way, I would argue the best or the clearest way to understand this letter is to view it in two parts. The first part being in the stars and the second part being in the dirt. So the first three chapters of the letter of Ephesians are all up in the stars. They're glorious promises, principalities and powers, soaring theology. This is the meta story of the whole world and it is expansive and it's all encompassing and it's very abstract, every last syllable of it. The final three chapters, though, are, are grounded in the dirt. Like what all that stuff means for your nine to five and your family structure and your relationships and your habits and your choices, all the details and environments of your day-to-day -day life, it's all grounded and it's as practical as it gets. The hinge that the whole letter turns on, though, where it goes from cosmic to personal, from stars to dirt is a prayer right at the end of chapter three, a prayer that holds the two parts of the letter together, a prayer that gets all the beliefs of the first half of the letter down into your bloodstream so they can be expressed in the ways found in the second half of the letter. And today I wanna break that prayer down as simply and as clearly as I can, so we're gonna go through it like this. How Paul prays, what Paul prays, and to whom Paul prays. Here we go, how Paul prays. Uh, a close friend, knowing how much this particular prayer meant to me, once uh, sent me this image that he personally illustrated. 
I've shown it here once before. It, it lived just above my desk for over a year. This prayer that we are reading, Paul prayed it from prison. He's in Rome, the, the world's greatest empire, awaiting trial before Caesar, the world's most powerful person. A couple soldiers likely would have been pacing just outside his door, muttering in small talk, passing the slow hours that come with guarding a prisoner. The shifts would change for the soldiers, but Paul would have been guarded day and night, 24 hours. He's allowed a visitor, just one, Tychicus, who's serving as the secretary, writing this letter as Paul is dictating it. So there's Paul in this cramped prison cell, on his knees on the stone floor, his elbows leaning against the cot, praying this prayer with fire in his belly as Tychicus is on the other end of the bed, trying to keep up, getting this thing down as quickly as it's coming out of Paul. You see, to pray is to feel the sting in your knees against the hard prison floor, a constant reminder of the messy, contested stage where every answered prayer gets enacted while also having an imagination that is less captive to the harsh realities of this world than it is to the one who stepped into the harsh realities of this world. So can you see him there? Paul, knees on the ground, elbows on the cot, guards pacing outside as he prays. Can you see him? Paul is in prison. But he is not paralyzed by his hardship. Paul is in prison, but his imagination belongs to Christ and his heart belongs to his brothers and sisters. He's crying out not for personal relief, but for love, that you and I might grasp the profound nature of the love that has pursued us. Do you see how free he is? I mean, they've locked him away. But Paul is a picture, a living picture. He's an incarnation of, of this whole letter of Ephesians just in this prayer. Because remember, the letter itself turns on this prayer at the center, which is the hinge point between heaven and earth, between the stars and the dirt. The first three chapters in the stars, the last three chapters in the dirt, in the middle of prayer, this is what prayer does. It holds together glorious promises and harsh realities. Prayer is the meeting point between the stars and the dirt, between cosmic realities and the Tuesday morning routine. Our tendency in prayer, though, is forever and will forever be to choose one without the other, to pray either with our feet fixed firmly in the dirt or our head lofty off somewhere in the stars, but rarely both held together in the tension of prayer. And so we typically swing the pendulum in one of two directions. We, we pray in the dirt or we pray in the stars. And these two forms of prayer, both of which are common in the modern church, you will not find anywhere on the pages of Scripture. But they dilute prayer's potency and power to form both us and the world around us. Prayer in the dirt is when prayer gets reduced to an afterthought, but my doing runs forward ahead of it. It's the never spoken but often expressed belief that my action is more productive, more helpful, more predictable, maybe even more powerful than God's action. Now we still pray, but our prayers are more of a tag onto our already set plans than they are the force that comes as a first instinct. So sometimes Jesus is called on to get behind a particular mission or to get involved in a pursuit or a relationship. 
Sometimes Jesus is asked to uh, come into my own spiritual practices, to use them to do something in me. Sometimes Jesus is enlisted to help me uh, with some pursuit or something that I want, a job, a home, a, a new place, a new beginning. Jesus is often asked to boost my plans, but rarely is Jesus first consulted on any of those plans. Rarely is he asked to turn over the soil of my inner life to show me my anxieties, fears, and destructive patterns. Rarely is he asked to speak direction into my heart before my heart latches to a direction. Rarely is Jesus consulted on my career trajectory or my home or my preferred outcome based on his priorities and not mine. This tendency to pray in the dirt is revealed when we say that we'll pray for someone or something far more than we actually pray for that someone or something. Or when we talk about God far more than we talk to God. Prayer in the dirt is a prayer with a sober view of the harsh reality of this world, but with a very limited view of the power of heaven that is availed at the simple mumblings of the praying person. And then there's prayer in the stars, which is just to swing the pendulum in the exact opposite direction. You see, if one is praying in a way that's firmly fixed in this world, aware of the human condition and the contested place all around us, the other's an escapist form of prayer that pulls me up into the clouds with Jesus apart from the mess of this world. And these types of prayers tend to spill forth from us in spiritual platitudes and in a kind of prayer language that you rarely hear on, on the street or in the cafe in the conversations of day-to-day -day life. Uh, they pour forth from us in these kinds of platitudes that, that never get connected to the actual realities of what we're praying for. Prayers for the sick that, that ignore today's symptoms and suffering or prayers for the poor that never get embodied in relationship to the poor, prayers for the oppressed that keep a safe distance from the violence, prayers for provision that never drop off tonight's dinner on the doorstep, it's that kind of thing. You see, there's a way of prayer that locks me away in a prayer closet with Jesus but never walks me into the mess that Jesus also walked into. There's a way of prayer that climbs the mountaintop that Jesus would often ascend to pray but doesn't walk back down the mountain and into the city where Jesus would go to embody his own prayers. And prayer that escapes the earth for a heavenly snuggle with Jesus is not the kind of prayer that you find anywhere in the Gospels or the New Testament. Prayers in the dirt are fixed in this world, but the limited imagination for the resources of heaven that are given at the prayers of God's people. Prayers in the stars are captive to those resources of heaven, but with a limited relationship to the earth where the kingdom comes. And Jesus would have nothing to do with either one of them. See, the setting of the spiritual life in the Gospels is in the grit and the grime of the everyday world. And the practice of the spiritual life, it's inseparably bound up in relationship with other people. With frustrating, sometimes apathetic, other times overzealous, occasionally engaged but often daydreaming, infrequently compassionate and highly ego-driven other people. And the power of the spiritual life in the Gospels is bound up in relating to God through prayer, and prayer becomes most powerful when it's immersed in relationship with those that we're praying for. And so, in the face of this two-sided temptation, 
to always drift to one end of prayer without the other, how was it that Paul was able to hold the two tensions together in the kind of praying that releases power? He knelt. Just look at our text together. This is the first verse. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family and on heaven and on earth derives its name. Kneeling is the way that Paul upended the temptation to plenty of action with very little prayer. We typically think of kneeling as a posture of reverence, and it's definitely that. But kneeling is also a position of complete inaction. When I'm on my knees, I can't do anything. I can't assert myself in any obvious way. I am willfully placing myself in a position of complete helplessness before another. Eugene Peterson says this, kneeling is an act of retreating from the action so that I can perceive what the action is without me in it, without me taking up space, without me speaking my peace. On my knees, I am no longer in a position to flex my muscles. I assume a posture that lets me see what reality looks like without the distorting lens of either my timid avoidance or my aggressive domination. I set my agenda aside for a time and become still present to God. Kneeling is a retreat from the action so I can see the action of God and then get in on it. See, prayer is not first and foremost me getting God to do what I think God should be doing. Prayer is not a reordering of God's priorities according to my agenda. Prayer is a way that we perceive what God is doing so that we can get in on it and participate with him. Kneeling is equally the way that Paul upended the temptation to lots of prayer with very little action. There are 43 prayers of Paul recorded in the New Testament, 43 of them. And the, one that sets, or the thing that sets this prayer apart from all the other 42 of them is that at least by my reading, this is the only prayer of Paul's where he tells us the way that he's posturing his body while he's praying. It's the only time he prays where he paints a picture for us to see him as he's going about this prayer. Now, why does he do that? Well, kneeling is a common prayer posture that we're aware of today, but it actually was a very uncommon prayer posture for a Jew. The Jews did not pray by kneeling. The Jews prayed by standing and raising their hands which is a total side note, which is why raising your hands is not some manipulative new age sort of worship. It might be the most historic way of worship that happens in any religion in any place of worship on the earth today. So this is the way that, that the Jewish temple where Paul grew up going to church, where the place where he as a Pharisee led worship, people would pray like this. Kneeling though was the common prayer position of the Gentiles. And the church in Ephesus was a very multicultural church. In fact, historic evidence would suggest that it was almost certainly a majority Gentile church. So Paul kneels, not instinctively, but intentionally to identify with the people that he's praying for. When he is praying that your heart and mind might be filled with all the fullness of God, he gets his body in a position that unites his heart to mine and yours. So, so Paul kneels intentionally as a significant and chosen embodiment of what he's asking for and who he's asking it be given to. Posture matters when we pray. Posture matters because we have an embodied faith and we've got wandering minds. 
The, the biblical story is one where God makes an appeal to the entire person. God did not send down a book because we were missing information. He did not offer us a miracle because we needed an expression. He didn't give us a pill because we were ill and, and needed our symptoms treated. God came as an embodied person to make an appeal to embodied people. So prayer is not a Toastmasters speech. It's not where I bring my best rhetoric to God and see if it might woo him into action. Prayer is communing with God, and that involves the entire person. It's language, yes, but it's every aspect of how he's made me. So we also pray with our bodies, not only with our words. And another reason is because we've got wandering minds. Anyone who's ever prayed has had this experience. Dear God, 10 minutes pass. Oh my word, I was praying. And then you go, but right? We do that all the time. We have wandering minds, and embodied prayer is a way that you use your body to remind your mind what you're doing. It's anchoring yourself where you intend to stay. This is why we pray weekly in this church this way, an embodied way. Why is that? Because we're embodied people. And so we pray with our cognition, but we also pray with our flesh. We anchor ourselves where we intend to stay because our minds are prone to wander. For this reason, I kneel before the Father. And then there's what Paul prays. Maybe the most unique aspect of Paul's biblical prayers is the stunning realization that he does not start with need. Let me pick up right where we left off. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. You know what's missing if you read this prayer or any others of Paul's is things like Aunt Edna's upcoming toe surgery and Antoine's first day at the new school and Paul's own need for a fair trial. And that's not because Paul did not know that there were the needs. In all of Paul's letters, he addresses practical questions, he references practical needs, he greets and speaks to people by name. He is immersed in the communities that he's praying for. He knows the needs. He's not distant and unaware. Today's needs just are not the primary concerns of his prayer life. Paul prays promises, not problems. Let me show you. The, the letter opens, the whole letter of Ephesians opens with these words. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. That's a thesis. Then he goes on for three chapters to expound on exactly what those blessings are that, that he opens with. You church, every one of you, were chosen before the foundation of the world. You were adopted into the new family of Jesus, forgiven redeemed, made an active participant in ongoing renewal. You were given an inheritance and a promised future, and all of that was sealed with the Holy Spirit. That's God's presence that's come to live within you. Oh, and now that I've explained what's going on individually, let me tell you what happens when that spills the banks and comes alive in a community. A reconciled community unites divided nations, classes, and people groups, and all are granted access to the presence of God. In fact, this collective people then becomes the dwelling place, the new temple where God's presence can be found. That's the Notes version of Ephesians up to this point. And then after all of that, after unpacking all the blessings that you and I have been freely given, Paul prays those very blessings down into our hearts. 
The prayer that you find at the end of Ephesians 3 mirrors all the theology that you find in the first three chapters of Ephesians. See, Paul explains the work of Christ and then he applies the work of Christ. New Testament scholar David Crump says, Paul asks for nothing in moderation. This prayer is an application of all of those promises. Prayer is the means by which we apply the promise. It's the way that we get what we believe deepest into our heads to come alive in our hearts. It's the way we get it not just known, but we get it lived. Prayer lives between the two. For three chapters, Paul has explained the good news of the kingdom. Now he prays that we might know the good news of the kingdom. And by now, you're aware that when we read no on the pages of scripture in the Hebrew imagination, that means yada, right? Not just intellectual knowing, but relational, experiential knowledge. One of the breakthrough insights of the famed psychologist Carl Jung was the way that he defined psychological health. He said that everyone, every last one of us, we live with this gap, this internal gap between our perceived self and our actual self, meaning that the way that I think I am, the way that I think I come across, the way I think you perceive me, and who I actually am, and the way I actually come across, and the way you actually perceive me, there's a gap there. We've all got some kind of error. That, that lives in me and it lives in you. It's kind of scary. And psychological health is to close that gap as small as we possibly can. The smaller the gap between who I believe myself to be and who I actually am, the more psychologically healthy the individual. The Apostle Paul seems to be saying something like that, that spiritual health is the closing of the gap between kingdom promises and the daily grind, between what I believe in my head and what I know in my heart and my emotions and my bones, between the core beliefs that I hold most dear and the core beliefs that I express day in and day out and the choices that I make and the life that I live and the priorities that I hold. Now, Paul was aware that there were many needs both within and around him, but the origin point of his prayers was not those needs. It was in a truer reality. And most often when we pray, our prayers begin in reaction to a problem. There's a conflict, a relational conflict that needs mending or, or anxiety about an undesired situation. There's a need within my life or maybe a need presented to me from the life of somebody else. Previous to every one of our prayers, we've been in the world. We've been in this contested place where need is inescapable and where problems show up in every last variety. We've been in a contested place where almost certainly a name other than Jesus has been taking up space in our imaginations. Names like productivity and comfort and agitation and future plans and fear. But Paul's prayer flows from God's promises, and so his prayer is born from a place of promise instead of problem. This is why Jesus taught us to begin all of our prayers with, hallowed be your name. Because you've been walking around in a contested world, and that contested world is infiltrating on your imagination. And so if you want to pray, you need to free your imagination by the expansive promises of God. Otherwise, your prayer will flow forth from reaction to problems with a limited view on God's power to intervene instead of from an expansive view on God's promises and the power that they have to overwhelm the problems of this world. 
We have to reverse the order of our imaginations if prayer is going to begin to flow from a place where it's powerful. During our time in New York, Kirsten and I were trained to become foster parents, which involved six weeks of really long evening classes, and it was really beneficial training. But I'll never forget the, the one time that uh, our instructor explained that when a foster child is placed in a new home, regardless of the age of that foster child or the health of, of that home, what will happen for most children is that they will begin to hoard away food in their room. And so they said, hey, just don't be surprised if, if in the room you find items from your pantry uh, or even your fridge kind of tucked away under the bed or hidden away in the closet or something like that. Now, why is that? Because this child has gotten used to providing for themselves and looking out for themselves for a long time. They've gotten used to the reality of not knowing where their next meal is going to come from or, or anything like that. And so they've gotten used to storing away for themselves to make sure they'll have enough. They've lived with the scarcity mindset for so long that it doesn't matter if there's a stocked fridge just down the hallway or a packed pantry that you tell them you've got access to this anytime you want it, it's all yours. Everything that's mine is yours. They've gotten so used to looking out for themselves they'll still live on nibbles of a granola bar they keep buried under their pillow. And isn't that a picture of how so many of us pray? Right, we've gotten so used to looking out for ourselves, providing ourselves, we've carried a scarcity mindset for so long that it doesn't matter if the father of all says to us like he said to the elder brother and the prodigal son, everything I have is yours. We still live on something like nibbles from a granola bar that we keep under the pillow. We are heirs of promise, but we still so often pray based on problems. And when problems become our prayer guides, we pray for problem removal. And the trouble with the remo removal of any problem is that another one lurks right around the corner. Because this world, this side of eternity, is a constantly contested place. And so Jesus never promises us an uncontested life. Actually, he promises us the opposite, a highly contested life. But he also promises full life in the midst of that opposition. He promises peace in the midst of an anxious world. He promises joy in spite of cause for sorrow. He promises comfort right in the midst of pain. He promises that we will be filled up when we give ourselves away like we've got nothing to lose. Jesus did not offer us a means of escape. He offered us a means of renewal. He does not predictably remove our problems. He gives us promises that make us resilient, even make us victorious in the face of those problems. And out of touch with the heavenly reality, but painfully aware of the problems of this world, our prayers are typically reactive, not proactive. They're born from anxiety, not from faith. They're born with a big view on problems instead of a big view on promises. But prayer's primary purpose is not problem removal. It is promise application. That's what prayer is for, promise application. Prayer is where promises get applied. Let me tell you about my week this past week. On Monday evening, I was feeling really anxious because I read an email that didn't sit great with me right at the end of the day. I promised to take my kids to the evening session at the pool. And so I'm driving to the pool for the evening session with this spiraling train of anxious thought running through my mind. And then I just turn on worship music in the car and I begin to pray. 
And as I began to pray and talk with God about it, I experienced the peace that is more powerful than anxiety. And I was able to be present with my children on Monday evening. I knew the promise, that God promises peace in place of anxiety when we pray, but I had to pray to apply the promise. I received a prophetic word about this coming season of breakthrough in this church, and it was vivid and it was from a trusted source. Now the scripture teaches that prophecy is a gift given to the church for strength, courage, and comfort, right, for the body. So I prayed that into being my entire time away, morning by morning in five distinct and specific ways. And then on my first week back from a very much needed time of rest, for which I'm really grateful for, I saw all five of those prayers clearly answered in equally specific ways. And it was then that I experienced the promise of the power of prophecy given to the local church. I was absolutely worn out at the end of last week because I had way too much to do and not nearly enough time to do it. And then I remembered Psalm 37, which says, delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. So I reached past my to-do list and all the things that were up front in my imagination. I began to talk to God about the deeper desires that live within me. Desires I have for my children and for my marriage and for who I wanna be when I'm old and hobbling around and desires for our church family and the things that would define us. And then suddenly the exhausting and heavy list of to-dos felt quite light because it was related in its proper place in my inner world. It was that point that I experienced the delighting in the Lord that makes anxiety feel light. Do you see what I'm saying? I, I can reflect on and know the promises of God, but I have to pray to apply those promises. It's that simple. Prayers where promises get applied. Now, just in case you haven't memorized the first three chapters of Ephesians and you don't just have all these promises on tap whenever you need them to pray, let me just give you a really simple way that you can put this into practice and begin to express it. Fear is unavoidable. It's always lurking around. It's always pouncing on us when we're vulnerable, right? And then fear gets expressed through us in so many different ways. It comes out of us in, over, in insecurity and in overwork and in defensiveness and anger and sadness and isolation and anxiety. We cannot avoid the fear that forever gets littered into our lives. What we can do though, is we can take thoughts captive by turning fear into gratitude and request. And that's what we do when we pray our fears. So, so for example, I'm afraid of losing a loved one. Turn that into gratitude and then request. God, thank you for giving me someone to love and be loved by. Thank you for giving me someone that's close enough in my life that I fear my life without them. And then a request. So let me cherish every moment that I have left with them, however many you choose to give me. Or, or I'm afraid of this colleague's opinion of me. Well, then in prayer, turn it into gratitude and request. God, thank you for making each of us uniquely that we're fearfully and wonderfully made and that your love pursues every one of us as if we were the only one on the face of the earth. And so, Father, forgive me that I've turned this person into a mirror that needs to, I need to prove myself to and they need to tell me who I am and instead give me your heart to pursue them like the good shepherd does with the love that honors the dignity of their whole person. Or, or I'm afraid of being alone. God, thank you that you never leave me or forsake me. Thank you that, you're, that you are my ultimate home and that one day I'll be with you forever entirely satisfied. And so today, let me know your nearness. Let me taste of that forever promised future that loneliness might not eat me up, but anticipation for you eats me up. That's how we take fear and we turn it into gratitude and request. That is how we pray promises, not problems.
But we got one more thing to talk about. Finally, to whom Paul prays. For this reason, I kneel before the Father. Now my youngest son, Amos, is now five months old, and he is the smiliest baby that I've ever seen in my life. It is so easy to get a massive grin out of him. Just to prove it to you, this is a photo I took this morning. I just snapped a quick photo before leaving the house. All you gotta do is get down in his face and be like, ah, you know, make a little, and just bam, anytime. Next slide, he's not smiling in this one. I took it just a tad bit too early, he's about to smile. Took him camping this weekend. Five months too early. That's why I wanted to show this, just for parents out there, if you're thinking, five months, should we do camping? Nope, just wait it out. That experience will come. So I was telling a friend this week about this, that like my kid never stops smiling. And he was explaining to me that for uh, both medical and psychological reasons, there's this consensus that babies actually don't smile the way that we do. That infants do not smile in response to circumstance or emotion. They're, they're incapable of that at this stage in their development. For babies, smiling only comes by imitation. So babies just reflect back the faces that they see the most. So if a baby grows up with parents who constantly get in their face and do the boop, 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 you know, and, and smile at them, that baby will begin to smile when they see your face. And it's not because they feel happy when they see your face, which hurt a little bit, <laughs> but, but because they're looking back at you the way you're looking at them. And so this friend who was telling me this, he's adopted two twins from an orphanage, and it's very difficult to get those infants to smile. But it's not because they're sad or because they aren't happy when he is near to them, it's because they grew up in an environment where not because the, the workers at this orphanage were careless or anything like that, there's just a few people caring for a lot of children, and so each one of those children has not had the privilege of having someone constantly in their face making sounds and smiling at them. And so smiling is gonna be a slower learned behavior because they're not getting to mirror it back as frequently. Now in the same way, the content of our prayers is a reflection of the God that we see. Our prayers, the honest and unprepared ones you pray when no one else is there to listen, the way that you talk to God when you're completely on your own and there's no need to perform in any way, they reveal to you the God that you believe in. So what do your prayers reflect about the God that you see? Is he kind, trustworthy, empathetic, and generous? Is he completely and comprehensively loving or is he, in your unconscious imagination, something short of who God revealed himself to be in Jesus? Maybe he's not entirely unpredictable, but he's not entirely trustworthy either. Or maybe he's not stingy, but he's also not generous. Maybe he isn't detached, but he's something short of empathetic. What God do your prayers reflect? In the final chapter of the whole of the Bible, we read this, and they shall live with his face in view, and that they belong to him will show on their faces. You see, the staggering claim on the final page of the whole story is this, if you just see him, 
If you fight every day not to lose sight of him, then you can't help but be so completely captivated that you reflect his image. The way to pray like Paul is just to know the God that Paul's praying to. That's it. If you glimpse him as he really is, this type of prayer flows forth naturally from being in his presence. We reflect back the God that we gaze into. The prayer goes on. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with, the, with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now this word dwell, it is the Greek kato, katoikeo. It's a hard one. Can you say it? Katoikeo. Great. I'm asking you to say it because I want you to remember it. It's that important. This is a compound Greek word, which is translated here as dwell, but it literally means to dwell down or to settle down. It's a word used to indicate that Christ is not visiting my inner life, that Christ is not a guest in my inner world, but he's invited to take up residence, to make a permanent home, to settle in and make himself at home. You see, when we talk about the power of the Holy Spirit, some people immediately imagine some list of spiritual superpowers that gets given to like the extra spiritual or the extra lucky. And other people immediately imagine something that happens around me that I can perceive. Like the, the spirit means that a lot, my whole city gets swept up in the tsunami wave of power or, or maybe just this one person or this one community, but the spirit is happening around me. But Paul's prayer for the spirit's power is something that happens within you, not around you. And he prays for the spirit's power to be displayed not through signs and wonders, but through a deeper and fuller sense of receiving God's love through Christ. The ultimate expression of the Spirit's power is not prophecy, healing, deliverance, or revival, though I'm into all of those things. The ultimate expression of the Spirit's power is a life that is so saturated in the love of Jesus that you can actually live today like God loves you. It's katoikeo that you would walk through fear, trial, triumph, disappointment, regret, pain, prison, assured of his love, that his love would anchor you and define you in the face of confusion and disappointment. And when you're being unfairly accused and criticized, when, when you're enduring injustice and oppression in the wake of betrayal, when everything's going perfectly according to plan and when everything is falling apart. I once had a mentor say to me, Tyler, everything in your life is an invitation to intimacy with Jesus. Everything, everything, because there's nothing on that list that he hasn't faced. False accusation, unfair criticism, who's publicly tried and executed without committing a crime. Injustice and oppression, he was born to a powerless, privileges, he was born a powerless, privilegeless peasant Jew during Roman occupation, betrayal, he got sold out by one of his best friends for a handful of shekels. Everything going well? There was a time when he couldn't escape the crowds flocking around him. Everything falling apart, those very crowds disappeared as quickly as they gathered. See, we do not have a great high priest who's holed up in the temple apart from the world to instruct us. We have a great high priest who's gotten his hands dirty with every mess that we can ever find ourselves in. And that means that every mess we can ever find ourselves in is an invitation to find him there with us. 
See, Paul prayed Ephesians 3 from a prison cell. That's where he remembered the width, length, height, and depth of God's love, not at the mountaintop. It was in the deepest of valleys. And that, knowing God's love there, that's the power of the Spirit on greatest display. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. In his book, The Attentive Life, Leighton Ford lays out this series of exercises by which we can explore and inhabit the, these dimensions of God's love. How long? Draw a chart, dividing your life into chapters, recalling just how long God's love has carried you. This is mine. How wide? Trace your life geographically to the various places that you've lived or traveled, measuring the width of God's love to you. How high and deep, draw another chart, this one naming the major emotional and spiritual highs and lows over, over your years. Where are your spiritual peaks, your emotional valleys, and where's God been in the midst of all of it? Now, I did that in my journal one morning I was embarrassed to show you my artwork, so I got some help. <laughs> and as I sat alone early one morning sketching these charts in my journal with all these memories rushing back to mind and the, and the expanse of God's love distancing itself all around me, I like to think, think that he was dwelling down, settling down inside me a little more fully because I was availing him just a little bit more room by which to make his love at home within me. So we'll land here today. Now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, God's love for you, his affection for you, his good intentions toward you, they exceed the boundary lines of your comprehension. He is incomprehensibly loving and unimaginably powerful. That's the God that we're praying to. That's the one who calls us children, heirs. And all that's well and good. But we're out of time. And tomorrow's a Monday morning. So what lives between kingdom promise and the daily grind of a Monday morning? How do we live this day in concert with what matters most at the end of our days? That's the question. That's the deep question of the spiritual life. Here's the shockingly simple answer, prayer. The kind of prayer that has its knees in the dirt but its imagination in the heavens. And the kind of prayer that's aware of problems but prays out promises. And the kind of prayer that gazes into the face of the one who changed and still changes everything.